and welcome to Women Travel, a podcast about the places women have been and the things they did there. I'm going to have Chloe introduce herself in just a moment, but first I wanted to say thank you so much for listening. It has been a tricky past couple of months and Annika will not be on this episode, but she will hopefully be joining us in future episodes. So thank you for tuning in and here's the show. Hi, I'm Chloe Gustafson. I just finished my PhD in Earth and Environmental Sciences at Columbia, and now I'm a postdoctoral research scientist at Swansea University in Wales, and I study groundwater that is hidden beneath oceans and ice sheets. So it's Antarctica. Yeah. There we go. Is it accurate if I say Antarctic for short? Um, like you would refer to the continent as Antarctica, but you could say the Antarctic if you're as like a little bit faster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm trying to think. Okay. They're fairly interchangeable, I think. I The thing that I felt certain about was that I couldn't call it the Arctic. That is very correct. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Always get your linguistics together yeah. before... <laughs> Um, so yeah, what kind of research do you focus on? So my research right now primarily focuses on groundwater systems that are either below the ocean or beneath the Antarctic ice sheet. So I have sort of these two different realms of research, but they're actually somewhat related because we think that the uh, fresh water beneath the ocean floor actually originates from older ice sheets that have just like melted and the seafloor has basically absorbed them. Um, but yeah, in Antarctica, my research has focused on looking at deep groundwater systems within these like sedimentary basins. The one that I've looked at recently, it's about a kilometer thick of sediments or rocks that are basically like a sponge or they're really porous and they're capable of holding water. So that's what I've been looking at recently and just really trying to get a first pass of how much water actually is there within the groundwater because it's not something that's really been considered in ice sheet models or anything. So I have kind of two questions from there. So First of all, this is fresh water that's underneath salt water. Um, and for like layman's terms, how does the fresh water get stuck under there? For the beneath the ocean? Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Or how did they first, even know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so first, there needs to be some sort of confining unit. And this is basically just some sort of rock layer that's very impermeable. Like it's really hard to get fluids past this layer. Uh, so there needs to be something to kind of hold this fresh water down below salt water because salt water is more dense. So that should be, you know, sort of the bottom tier of things. And like this fresh water, because it's less dense, would want to eventually rise up. But if you have this confining unit that's kind of holding it down, that's how it stays there. But how it got there, so this is like old water for the most part. Um, if water could think, talk. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of this water, what we think has happened is in the Northern Hemisphere, for example, 
like back during the last glacial maximum, there was this ice sheet called the Laurentide Ice Sheet, and it extended like all the way down to Long Island, New York. That was sort of like the front of the ice sheet. And basically when temperatures, well, I'll back up a sec. So we're in the last glacial maximum, there's an ice age. A lot of the ocean water is taken up by ice sheets during ice ages. So sea level is lowered significantly. And like during the last glacial maximum, we think sea level was about 120 meters lower. So there's there are these regions and continents called continental shelves that today are marine environments, but during the last glacial maximum, because sea level was lowered so much, they were actually terrestrial environments. So I just want to check the yeah. the glacial maximum that you're referring to, is that the kind of glaciers that we see are kind of vanishing today? Or was this before then? Because I know there's a lot of so, back and forth. Yeah, yeah, there is. So the last glacial maximum and like the Laurentide ice sheet, which was the giant ice sheet covering a lot of North America, there's... Oh man, I don't even know if there's anything left of the Laurentide ice sheet. So this is like glacial maximum. Antarctica is like full extent. There's this huge northern hemisphere ice sheet. But I I don't want to mess this up, but I don't think the Laurentide ice sheet is around at Got all. It. Okay. <laughs> anymore. <laughs> so it's this massive ice sheet. It can be really thick, like on the order of kilometers. And so these ice sheets take up ocean water. You have continental shelves that are exposed. So you can get just like rain and river uh, water forming aquifers in these continental shelves that are terrestrial during uh, glacial maximum. So those are just sort of like aquifers that we think about today uh, on land. So that's one way that water gets in. But then once these ice sheets start to melt, and you can imagine it's a lot of melt because there are these huge, thick, on the order of a kilometer, uh, mass of ice now turning into water. Basically, they melt and kind of like percolate down into the sediments. And similar to like the sponge I was talking about before, the sediments sort of act like a sponge and absorb all the water and it's the the like mass of the glacier as well can kind of force it away from the front so we get kind of these just like tongues of water that extend from where we think the glacier was last okay so we fast forward in time skip a few 9900 and how <laughs> did scientists today discover that there's fresh water under there without disturbing the rock that's holding it right so the first people and this is just like word of mouth but the first people who discovered it were actually oil companies who were drilling in the continental shelves to look for oil because continental shelves are also kind of prime targets for oil yeah but instead they found fresh water it's totally useless uh, water what are you- yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but then, like, th- so this was, like, in the 70s, 1970s, and then, like, a few years later, there was this really big uh, ocean drilling expedition that occurred, and they drilled all these 
holes in the ocean for scientific purposes, kind of for studying Earth's past and the sediments in the ocean. Um, and they saw that there was fresh water within the seafloor. And there have been some more focused drilling surveys now that have, you know, sort of given us these point measurements of, okay, there's fresh water at this latitude, longitude location. So that's how we first found out. So your science, and I remember talking to you in person, um, it seems like there's a lot of focus on ice. And I just wonder if, like, were you always really interested in ice and, like, the science behind it? Or was it just something that kind of happened organically through college or something like that? It wasn't really an interest of mine in college. Like, I'm really happy it worked out the way it did because now I find ice and everything that it does, especially for water purposes, very interesting. Um, but I first kind of got interested in these sort of systems when I started graduate school. But when I was applying to grad school, I wasn't thinking about groundwater at all. I just like finished school. I had applied to some masters and PhD programs, basically because people told me if you wanted to like be a real geophysicist, like have geophysicist in your title, you would need a master's or a PhD. If you want to like, be a real geophysicist, you've got to do this. <laughs> Which is like, maybe that's not true, but that's what was sure. in my mind. And, you know, at the time, to be perfectly honest, there weren't very many oil company jobs available, which is where a lot of geophysicists go. And so I was like, well, you know, if I want to, A, be a real geophysicist and... Um, maybe work for one of these companies, which was sort of my initial plan uh, post-graduation, um, I figured I should get a higher degree. But then I talked to my now PhD advisor, and he had all these really cool ideas about these projects going on. He said, oh yeah, we're trying to get some project funded to go to Antarctica. And I was just like, well, I want to go to Antarctica. <laughs> Do you get a badge or something that says that you're um, a real geophysicist? <laughs> no, but Not actually, even like a hat. if you go to Antarctica, you they actually give you like an Antarctic service medal. So when you started saying badge, it was like, oh, I actually do have this little medal that they gave me. <laughs> you have a medal. That's fantastic. So you went to Antarctica. When did you go to when did you go? The first time I went was November, I guess October through November 2017. And then the second time I went, which is kind of the more intense time, was the following what we call field season. And that was November 2018 through January 2019. So it's on the South Pole. So if you go, does the seasons that affect the rest of the globe affect Antarctica as well? Like, so it kind of experiences a spring, summer, fall? Yeah, it does. Antarctica goes through seasons, but it's always cold. And all of the field work happens actually during the spring and summertime because in the winter, A, it's going to be dark all of the time, and B, it's going to be very cold. So we go during the summer when the sun is out 24-7, because you're so far south and you're not, you don't get the sun 
setting just as a fact of the location wild yeah so you just can see the sun kind of wrapping around Mm -hmm. pretty much that is so cool what is the housing like like because when whenever there are photos they always look like these metal almost like barricades (laughs) um how would you describe the kind of housing situation i guess when we first arrived to antarctica that was at mcmurdo station which is one of the american stations in antarctica and the u.s has three stations there's mcmurdo which is the largest one and during the peak season there can be around a thousand people there and then they have south pole station where I don't know the numbers for South Pole, but there's significantly less people who go to South Pole. And it's literally because it's, like, right at the South Pole, like, bottom of the Earth. (laughs) And then there's also a smaller station on the Antarctic Peninsula. If you look at a map of Antarctica, there's sort of this little offshoot that goes towards South America, and that's Palmer Station. But we went to McMurdo, and McMurdo is a very interesting place. The housing situation there is basically like college dorms. Uh, Almost everyone shares a room. Everyone shares a room. I can't, maybe like the really high up National Science Foundation people have their own room, but basically everyone has a room. You're lucky if you only have one roommate. I know a lot of the rooms have like four people in them maybe so it's like bunk beds there's a cafeteria where everyone eats all their meals like very <laughs> college undergrad-esque it's setup. summer camp yeah yeah <laughs> it totally is is there is it sort of like a resort where there's like staff that come there part-time of the season or anything like that Yeah, so I'd say the majority of people who go to Antarctica are the contractors or the staff who are there to keep the station running. So yeah, you have like a whole bunch of people working in the galley, cooking meals for everyone. Uh, There's people who have to take care of all the waste. You're not allowed to throw anything away in Antarctica. Like a long time ago, they used to just like throw things in the ocean, but now it's like you have to take care of everything and eventually put it on a boat to take it back to California or somewhere. Pack it in, pack it out kind of mentality there. Yeah, exactly. They used to leave batteries out in the snow, like science equipment. You didn't have to take them out of the snow. So there's just like old batteries that are buried somewhere in the ice sheet. Uh, why, so you said it houses roughly a thousand people. Um, how, or what is the main motivation for people to come to Antarctica? Is it all scientists? Uh, I mean, for the scientists, the main motivation, you know, is to do your research. Uh, for us, McMurdo is sort of a stop along the way to our deep field campsite where we're actually sleeping in tents. Um, but, you know, it's hard to say why other people come to Antarctica. Being in McMurdo is super fun, like, no matter if you're a scientist or uh, someone working in the galley or a janitor or someone who's working logistics. Um, it's kind of, I think it's a fun environment to be in. Everyone works really hard. Uh, I think everyone has to work six days a week. Um, but I mean, it's just a cool experience. Yeah. How many people 
can say they went to Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. Okay. One question that I thought of, bef- like, right before we started recording, I was thinking about, you know, like, taking a shower. And was the water ever comfortably hot? In Antarctica? Yeah. At McMurdo Station, yes, you are asked to limit how many times you take a shower. Like, probably don't take one every day because water is limited and take short showers. But yeah, there is definitely hot water. I will say when we were out in the deep field camping, you just don't shower. So, and How long were you in the deep field? I camped for 61 days, which is by far my longest camping trip. And my friends will tell you I don't even like camping. <laughs> but it was it was actually very fun in Antarctica. And it's more like glamping because airplanes drop you off with like thousands of pounds of gear and you like set up a big tent, you know, Um, you have like, everyone has their own individual sleeping tent. And then there's this like even bigger, like 20 foot by 10 foot tent. That's called an Arctic oven where you make all your meals and you have your camping chairs set out where you can hang out in your very limited free time. Um, describe to me how you did your research. Right. Yeah. So I've been talking about groundwater, but I haven't talked about how I actually look for it. Um, yeah, we don't use radar, but the idea is similar in that you're using an instrument that's on the top of the surface that basically like penetrates down through the ice and then through the underlying bedrock generates a signal, which then, um, like travels back up through the rock and the ice. So the method that I use uh, is called magnetotellurics, which is an electromagnetic method. Oh, it's not a villain in uh, the Marvel comic books? Okay. That's on me. (laughs) No, but it just... (laughs) It certainly sounds like it. Um, It's really cool. Basically, there's always electromagnetic energy just like coming down from the sky and entering the earth um it's just always happening don't tell the internet like the internet (laughs) conspiracy people that yeah that's too much for them (laughs) so there's there's electromagnetic energy that's like coming down as a wave and it can travel into the earth and secondary fields electric and magnetic fields are generated within the earth based on the conductivity of the rocks so for example if we have our sponge that's holding groundwater and it's really salty groundwater then that is very conductive it's electrically conductive like you could imagine salt water has like ions in it so it's easier for electricity to conduct with these ions. Um, So some secondary signal is generated because there is some variation in the subsurface from this salty water. And then basically that small electromagnetic field signature travels back up through the ice and we can measure it. So now the like really heavy question when it comes to science research is what does this mean or why is it important to study this so for the antarctic groundwater 
one of the reasons groundwater could be important is, well, you can imagine water, like liquid water at the base of the ice sheet is going to help it flow faster. And people have already shown that water just sort of existing right at the ice rock interface um, plays a huge role in ice flow and how quickly ice flows from the continents into the ocean where it ultimately contributes to sea level. So we are looking at groundwater and kind of asking the question, does groundwater also contribute to the water supply at the base of the ice sheet and could it potentially make the ice sheet flow faster and contribute to sea level faster or could this giant sort of sponge that we've been talking about could it actually suck water sort of down and away from the base of the ice sheet and slow it down so would this hypothetically be a solution like a responsive solution to some side effects of global warming um it's hard to say how like this dynamic coupling between the ice sheet and the groundwater like really works and on what time scales like we're sort of just starting we're at a starting point right now I think like with our research we've shown that there is groundwater beneath Antarctica and we do think it is dynamic uh in the sense that it's this reservoir is exchanging water between you know itself and the base of the ice sheet so it, it could play a role in either mitigating ice sheet contribution to sea level rise, or uh, it could be contributing. Uh, it's hard to say at this point. Got it. Cool. What's your What's your big curiosity personally um, as you're doing more of this research? Right. So I guess I'm curious how prevalent this groundwater actually is throughout the entire continent um, because where we've conducted our surveys is sort of this smaller region. Um, We think it could be representative of more regions in Antarctica. So we went to an ice stream, which is a very fast-flowing region of ice in Antarctica, and we just went to one, but there are like a whole bunch of ice streams that sort of go around the whole continent. I started laughing because I was like, yeah, a common fast flowing stream of ice. This is a thing that (laughs) happens. Um, I get, I get what you mean, but um, it's a funny way to phrase it. Yeah. (laughs) So we went to one ice stream. There are several that go around the whole continent and control. These ice streams are really what control how fast water is flowing out into the ocean, or excuse me, how fast ice is flowing out into the ocean. So my curiosity right now is, okay, is there groundwater at all of these ice streams? Does it affect all of these ice streams in the same way? And sort of not related to anything I've talked about, but (laughs) I'm also curious what this groundwater can tell us about Antarctica's past. And this is where it kind of gets back to 
the offshore groundwater research that I talked about earlier, because we've seen that melting ice sheets can sort of leave this freshwater signature in the ocean floor when they melt. Uh, so I am curious to see if we'll be able to say anything about Antarctica's past with this sort of work. Um, but that's ongoing. I will say the groundwater that we see was not fresh. It was actually salty, which is not what we expected. So with regards to looking into Antarctica's past, we think this salty water sort of marks a time in... Uh, how do I say this? The salty water shows that ocean water basically intruded into the sediments at some time in the past. So the ice sheet was smaller and the ocean came in and deposited salt water, if that makes sense. It, so it was fresh water and then now it's salt water. Uh, but like we know that what it was previously fresh water. So <laughs> it's, yeah, it's all... I think that's what makes this excite this research exciting. It's like there's still a lot of unknowns. Ultimately, with this Antarctic research, I think the most telling thing, basically, I think we'll learn the most once we can drill really deeply below the Antarctic ice sheet into the sediments and like actually look at the isotope signatures um, to give us a better idea of how this water got there and what are its possible origins but the technology is not there yet to do this really deep subglacial drilling but hopefully it will be within my scientific career <laughs> thank you so much for sharing some of your uh expertise on something i know very little about uh yeah hopefully it wasn't too jargony i haven't no, talked great. to many people <laughs> outside of science about this and I know it can be really hard to escape the sciencey terms. <laughs> well, were they real geophysicists that you were talking to though? Or were they fake geophysicists? Oh, they were real. Okay. I'll have to take your word for it. Do you have any pets? Oh no, what's your COVID what's your like it's kind of depressing, but try to silver lining it, but like what's your uh covid hobby or um thing that you've done to entertain yourself like i've started hanging uh pine cones like i'll do the peanut butter and seeds and i'll hang them oh, yeah. on a tree outside nice. my window so i can watch squirrels they're insane they will like pull the string <laughs> so they'll like just take the whole pine cone and try to carry it up the tree <laughs> and then they'll like pull the string until it falls off um and wow. like they'll break Dedication. the string yeah they're a lot stronger than i was expecting so, <laughs> uh, okay, my COVID hobbies have been, well, I've been reading more, like not science papers, just like books for fun, which has been really great, partially out of necessity because it's like a nice way to turn my brain off at night. Um, so that's been really fun, reading more books. I've <laughs> been reading recently a lot of like memoirs from strong women so that's been fun oh you got some uh some recommendations 
Well, I mean, Becoming by Michelle Obama. I was, like, late to that party, (laughs) but I read that during COVID, and it was awesome. I read a book by professional runner Alexi Papas. Uh, She just came out with a book called Bravey, and that was very enjoyable. I met, I read Megan Rapinoe's book. That was very good. And now I'm reading... Well, it's not a strong woman anymore, but um, what I talk about when I talk about running, I forget the author's name, but... um, Haruki Murakami. Yes. Just started that last night. I am a big fan of that book. Um, If you ever figure out how to make, I think it was pickled plums that he talks about um, at some point, there's several foods that he mentioned, and I was like, I need to know about these. And they're not things that are commonly found in America, so they're kind of quest items. (laughs) nice (laughs) yeah oh that's cool i'll uh keep an eye out for that i've read like chapter one (laughs) thank you chloe and um thanks morgan i wanted to let you know that the music is by hats for birds he's available on Bandcamp, and he's a local boisean so go ahead and support him if you can uh that's hats for birds on Bandcamp. thank you Thank you, thank you so much for listening. All of the personal feedback that I've been getting really motivates me to keep making this and to keep working on projects for the future. I am hoping to expand and to do some deeper interviews um, to touch on topics that require more legwork. And so in response to that, this year may have less consistent shows. Um, I'm hoping to get at the very least one new show every month. Um, And I will definitely be hearing from you and looking forward to hearing from you uh, when I do miss uh, any of my deadlines. But for now, you can plan to hear from me again on April 1st. All right. Happy travels.